Today's podcast is sponsored by NetSuite, the easy-to-use cloud-based business management software for every aspect of your business. Take advantage of NetSuite's special financing offer at netsuite.com gold. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Factor. Choose from 34-plus weekly flavored-packed dietitian approved meals ready to eat in two minutes. Head to factormeals.com slash goldpeter50 and use code goldpeter50 to get 50% off. Well, it may be 2024, but Wall Street is certainly partying like it's 1999. You know, one of the Differences might be that the leadership in the current rally is even more narrow than it was back then. You know, I think today really typified the absurdity of this uh, bubble where the Dow and the S&P were led to new highs by NVIDIA, right? The poster boy of uh, the Magnificent Seven, although maybe a couple of them are not quite as magnificent anymore, but at least five of them, I think, are, 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 are moving. Uh, but of course, it is the uh, go-to um, AI stock. They make all the GPUs that Meta is buying and Google is buying and Microsoft is buying. Yet those stocks, look at Meta. Meta was up 4% today. <laughs> it's spending all that money that NVIDIA is making. NVIDIA, though, up, I think, 18% if you look at the after-hours gain. I think it was a record uh, appreciation. The increase in the market cap in a single day in, uh, in Meta stock, I think it was about $260 billion increase in the, in the market cap. That's not the value. That's just uh, the increase in, in in the cap. I'm trying to see. I, I had tweeted it out, so I'm trying to go and look at, um, you know, what I said was the increase because I wrote it down earlier. Yeah, 277 billion it was that. That's just the gain, right? Most companies aren't worth anywhere near 277 billion, let alone having a one-day gain of that amount. But to put it in perspective, you know, with the gold industry. You know, I looked up the top 85 gold mining stocks, which is pretty much, that's the whole industry, right? When you get down to the top 85, I mean, it's mostly the top dozen or so, but the top 85 publicly traded mining companies are worth $260 billion. So today alone, NVIDIA gained more value than the entire uh, gold industry has. And of course, as NVIDIA was leading the tech stocks higher, Newmont Mining was leading the gold stocks lower. Gold was relatively flat today, trading around $2,030 an ounce. And Newmont Mining was down 7.5%. They came out with earnings. They weren't a disaster. They were not you know, quite up to expectations. They did announce they were selling some non-core assets, which is normally good for a business. If they say, hey, we're going to get rid of some of these non-core assets, we're going to raise some cash, uh, we're going to focus on our core business, which is mainly gold and now copper mining. Really, that's their, their, their bread and butter. So they're selling off some tangential assets, uh, paying down some debt. They did announce a reduction in the dividend, but they're buying back stock because they think it's super cheap. 
you know, if a tech stock came out with the same type of news story, the stock would have been up, right? But the sentiment is so negative in the gold miners that Newmont is down near a five-year low or something like that. You know, the last time Newmont Mining was trading at this lower price, gold was about $1,300 an ounce. So gold has gone up 50%. That's, that's not nothing. It's 50% increase in the price of gold. And, and, and Newmont's done nothing. Forget about the fact that it should have gone up double or triple that percentage. It didn't go up at all. Now, part of the big problem for Newmont and all the other mining stocks is that it's so much more expensive to mine gold now than it was when it was at $1,300 an ounce. Now, why is that? Inflation. Inflation has taken a huge toll on the profits of these companies because the price of gold has not risen uh, as much as the cost of mining it. And that is, again, why I keep saying that gold mining stocks are the ironic victims of inflation, because inflation is supposed to be good for the gold mining stocks, because it's supposed to be good for gold. When there's a lot of inflation, people buy gold. Remember, for so many years, everybody thought inflation was dead and buried. Uh, The Fed is great. It's going to be 2% from now to eternity. And so we don't need a hedge. No reason to buy gold. Well, that's clearly not the case. Uh, Yet people are still not buying gold. People are still confident that the Fed is going to be able to return inflation to 2% or that maybe it's already succeeded in doing that. And so despite all this inflation, the price of gold uh, continues to lag. Now, I think that's uh, not going to go on indefinitely. We got to be coming near a breaking point where investors are going to figure out that inflation is not going back down to 2% and gold needs to be repriced much higher for a world where inflation is substantially higher than that target, in which case uh, these gold mining companies like Newmont uh, will be extremely profitable because I don't think the cost of mining will go up anywhere near as much as the price of gold. Gold prices have a long way to go just to catch up, uh, let alone where they need to go to reflect the reality on how bad inflation is. But it's great to kind of juxtapose uh, these two stocks, Newmont getting killed, NVIDIA soaring, and the euphoria on Wall Street. And just, you know, the, 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 uh, it, it, it's like the best of times and the worst of times, where the mining stocks are the worst of times. And the reality is, though, the fundamentals couldn't be better for these coal mining stocks and gold in particular, but nobody recognizes that because they're, they're stuck in this, in this bubble. And I think the, the psychology is very similar to 1999 with the tech bubble. But I think what's, what's worse now, and you remember when stocks peaked in 1999, uh, 2000, and NASDAQ in particular, the NASDAQ dropped by 80%. I mean, there was so much enthusiasm back then. And, and, and then the market went down by 80%. And it would have gone down more than that. It would have gone down 90%, maybe 95% if the Fed didn't slash interest rates to 1%. I mean, that was a mistake, but it had the ability to make that mistake. It was able to prop the markets back up uh, by cutting interest rates to 1%. And then, you know, it inflated a, a real estate bubble that didn't pop until 2008. But I think what's really significant about today's situation 
is that you got 1999, 2000 all over again in the stock market, but it's more like 2008 in terms of the disaster that's waiting around the corner. We didn't have a financial crisis in 2001, right? That, that didn't happen until 2008. We had a shallow recession. We did get the, the September 2001 terrorist attacks. Uh, but the, the, the 2008 financial crisis is what, you know, was the catalyst and for the, the Great Recession and for uh, QE and 0% interest rates. But I think where we are right now is we've got the stock market bubble of the 1990s, 1999, 2000, and the financial conditions of 2008 together. Because the stock market probably wasn't as big a bubble in 2008 as it was in 1999. Um, the dollar clearly wasn't as big a bubble because in 2008, the dollar was at a record low. In 1999, it was near record high. So the currency market is a lot similar to 1999 as well. And then the dollar collapsed, right? From 1999, 2000, the dollar index went from like 120 down to um, about 70. Gold market, the same thing. The gold market looks a lot more today like 1999 than it did in 2008. Where was gold in 1999, 2000 when the NASDAQ was making record highs? Gold was below $300 an ounce. That's where it was. But in 2008, when we had the financial crisis, gold was 1000 So gold had gone up more than 5x when we had the financial crisis. But leading up to 2000, uh, 1999, 2000, gold had gone down for 20 years. Gold was at 800 in 1980, and it was at 300 in 2000. It was down over those 20 years. So gold was very cheap when stocks were very expensive. That's where we are now. Even though gold is $2,000 an ounce, it's cheap because of all the money that has been created that didn't exist 20 years ago and all the debt that didn't exist 20 years ago. It's a, it, gold is a, is, is a measure of the value of that money. And there's so much more money sloshing around because of the Fed and other central banks that you should need a lot more than $2,000 to buy an ounce of gold. So everything to me is is reminiscent of the 1999 uh, with the stock market, the gold market, the dollar, and all these bubbles. You know, go back to the 1966, the Nifty 50. You know, whenever they have, you know, this small group of stocks, and there's never been a group of stocks smaller than the group that's leading this market now and how, how large a percentage of the overall value of the market uh, these handful of stocks represent. But what were the big stocks in 1960s? You know, the, the, it was Xerox, Polaroid. Who, who's buying those stocks now? I mean, does anybody even know? Who's, who's old enough to remember Xerox? <laughs> right, because they, they were innovative because they came up with a copy machine. Oh, so they were going to change the world. I mean, sure, yeah, it was great to have a Xerox machine. In fact, Xerox was so popular that that a Xerox became the brand became the world word. It wasn't make a copy of this. It was make go make me a Xerox, right? That's what people said if they wanted a copy. It was make a Xerox. That's what it was because that was the machine uh, that did it. Or Polaroid, 
right? How many people have Polaroid cameras? Although actually now, I mean, I see them once in a while at parties. They're kind of making a comeback in a small way. <laughs> but for a while, I mean, Pol Polaroid was it, right? Because you could take a picture and you didn't have to get it developed. You didn't have to take it to, uh, you know, the little uh, Kodak. Most people don't remember that you used to take a picture and then you would, you would take your film in this little box and you'd take it to one of these stores. They used to have these little Kodak uh, shops little, in, in parking lots, right? They would just be in the middle of a parking lot. They'd be small and you'd take your film there and you'd drop it off and, and then you'd come back in a few days or a week and they would have developed your, your, your negatives and you can go back and you can get your pictures and you can see what they look like, right? You had no idea. You took a picture. You had no idea, you know, if, you know, what you looked like, you know, where your eyes uh, closed, you know, where was your mouth? You, you didn't know until you got the picture back. What is it like today? You take 10, 15 pictures in a couple of seconds and you delete all the ones you don't like. You know exactly how it is. Then you can even fix it up, right, on the on your uh, on your camera you can put all these filters in there and take out your blemishes and, and all that but when polaroid came around oh this is great you don't have to do that you can just take a picture and it pops out and you watch it for you know 60 seconds and it develops all by itself but people were getting crazy about that just the way they were crazy about the internet stocks and the way they're crazy about the uh uh the ai stocks and yeah i mean those were good innovations at the time and there's no doubt that that artificial intelligence will be helpful and, you know, but <laughs> the markets once again are way ahead of the reality of where all this is going. And at the same time, you know, they're overlooking uh, the tremendous uh, economic problems and financial problems that are hiding in, in plain sight. Anyway, I'm going to talk more about those problems at the other side of this break. So stick around. We'll be right back. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Teams buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have already upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get customized solutions for all your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, and it's all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you constantly excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com gold. That's netsuite.com gold to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com gold. I forgot to mention, too, the size of these moves. The S&P was up better than 2% today. Um, the NASDAQ almost up 3% on the day. Dow was up like 450 points. Again, S&P and the Dow hit record highs. Not quite the NASDAQ yet, although many names like Facebook, uh, NVIDIA, those are at all-time record highs, or meta rather than, than Facebook. And also, I noticed that the Nikkei uh, finally took out a new record high. We own... Uh, quite a few Japanese stocks in our managed portfolios. Uh, but I mean, if you look at the Japanese stock market and look at it where it was uh, in the 1980s, it's taken a long time 
uh, for the Nikkei to bet back to where it was 40 years ago. But that shows you because there was a huge bubble in Japan in stocks and real estate in the 1980s. I mean, everybody uh, thought it would go on forever and Japan was going to take over the world. Uh, and then they had one lost decade after another. So uh, the markets and investors can all crowd into the same trade and be completely wrong. And they're generally the most wrong, the most cocky at the top. And that's what I think I see here. And again, it's not just the stock market. Uh, Bitcoin, all these Bitcoin ETFs, a lot of these, I think, hit new highs today uh, since they've come out or close to it. Uh, Bitcoin is still trading above uh, 50,000. I think it's about 51,000 and change. Uh, 51,400. I just pulled it up as I'm, I'm doing the podcast. But everybody that's in these overpriced assets uh, could not be uh, more cocky uh, about their trades. And I think there's a lot of despair, a lot of, uh, you know, nervousness in the people who are holding uh, gold stocks, for example, or other value-oriented names that, you know, are not invited uh, to this party. But I started talking before the break. The big uh, elephant in the room that people are ignoring is inflation and what this portends. And I, I talked more about inflation because when I did my last podcast, I did it the day we got the CPI numbers last week. And they were worse than expected. And uh, that sent gold down about 30 bucks. And it finally went below 2,000. It had been above uh, 2,000 uh, for 41 days. That was a record. And a higher than expected uh, January CPI uh, caused gold to go below 2,000. It didn't stay there for long. It stayed there for a couple of days. But then we got the PPI later in the week. And the PPI was also worse than expected. And we all and we got more inflation news. We got the import export prices that were way higher than expected. So we got a trifecta of bad inflation news. But gold bounced back. It ended up closing the week back above uh, 2,000. It actually was positive on the week, a couple of bucks. Uh, and we've been up since then. Even though these gold mining stocks have been uh, drifting uh, down, uh, gold has uh, come right back above and it's been holding above 2,000 again, trading about 2,000 and $30 an ounce. But I don't want to talk too much about that because I, I did a special uh, video for Shift Gold uh, Friday, last week on Friday. So it's up on my YouTube channel. So if you want a little bit more on that inflation news and the gold reaction, it's about a 20-minute video. So I won't you know repeat it all here. Just go and uh, watch that if you haven't already watched it because it wasn't one of my podcasts. So if you're just looking for the podcast, you would have missed it. Uh, uh, and, you know, if you're listening on, you know, on uh, Shift Radio or you're listening on uh, iTunes or wherever the podcasts are, you wouldn't have necessarily known about uh, the, the gold video that I posted on Friday. So go and check that out after you're, you're done with this. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention this at the top of the show. I'm going to do a, uh, a Q&A. I know probably people have a lot of questions. Uh, so I'm going to do a, a Q&A at shiftradio.com slash premium at the end of today's podcast. So if you're not currently a member, you can sign up uh, and then you could participate. Uh, you can ask me a question or you can just sit back and listen to me answering the questions that other people have, uh, have asked me. But what's new this week on inflation 
is the FOMC minutes that came out yesterday. <clears throat> and this is the Federal Open Market Committee. These guys get together and they discuss <clears throat> their economic outlook. And then weeks later, I forget what the lag is between <clears throat> the meeting and the release of the minutes of the meeting, but the minutes come out and then Wall Street looks through it. And again, this threw a bit of a scare into the gold market because a lot of the members are a bit concerned uh, that, you know, maybe they're moving too quickly on the rate cuts and maybe they should go a little slower. Maybe they should wait just for more evidence that inflation is dead and buried, right, before they, they celebrate uh, its death and, and, and cut rates. And, of course, this is generally taken as negative for the gold market, but the gold market uh, kind of shrugged it off, uh, which really shows you the underlying strength in the market. There was a brief sell-off in stocks, but I think investors quickly uh, realized that, look, you know, we're going to get these cuts. It doesn't really matter, you know, when we get the first cut, when we get the second cut. What the markets are focused on is that the hikes are over. And we're going to get cuts. And so we've got the wind at our back. The question is, you know, how, how strong is that wind? But we've got that. And, and, and so it's just a green light to buy stocks. And the markets are assigning pretty much a zero probability that the Fed is going to, to hike rates. But the probability is not zero that inflation is going down. In fact, the probability is almost 100% that it's going up. People still don't get that. Look at the price of oil. I mean, oil is now back above $78 a barrel. Uh, I think it's it's getting ready for a big move up. The price is up 10% this year, right? So we're in February, and on this calendar year, right, where inflation supposedly is going away, and in less than two months, you got a 10% increase in the price of oil. I mean, what, what does that tell you? Uh, look at uh, mortgage rates are now back above 7%. Uh, so the price of buying a home, and of course, that's going to put more upward pressure on rents. I just read that food, the amount of money that households are spending on food, the percentage of their income that they're spending on food is like as high as it's ever been. You know, that's not a good thing. And I'm sure that families are spending a record amount of money on food and they're buying lower quality food, right? They're trading down and they're still spending more. But the inflation pressures are building. Look at the bond market. The bond market is very close to a breakdown. We almost got to 4.5% yield today on the 30-year Treasury. We just, we just got right below it. But I think maybe by tomorrow or certainly by next week, we're going to be above 4.5%, which means we're back closer to 5% on the yield than, than 4%. But these market indicators are showing that inflation is coming back. That we've bottomed out and we're just moving higher. And the markets have no expectation that this is possible because the markets are betting that the Fed's not going to raise rates. Now, they may be right, but if they're wrong, the stock market's going to collapse. If the Fed has to do a 180 and pull the rug out from under the market and hike rates, which is something that is zero probability in all these, uh, you know, 
program trading or whatever the investors are doing. If they get that kind of shock, then it's, it's going to be you know, a collapse. But if the Fed doesn't hike rates, it could be even worse, maybe not for the market, but for the dollar, for bonds, and even more bullish for gold. Because if the Fed doesn't hike rates, then inflation is just going to run out of control. And in fact, even if the Fed doesn't cut rates, if it leaves rates where they are, real rates are going down because inflation is going to go up. So if inflation goes up and the Fed stays the same, real rates are dropping. I think the Fed is in a position where it's, it can't raise rates. It backed itself into that corner, and it's an election year. I mean, that would be the worst possible time if they're, you know, timing for that. If their goal is to reelect uh, Joe Biden, which is, you know, becoming a more difficult goal as every day goes by, uh, you know, maybe, you know, they're, they're not going to have Biden. You know, I looked at uh, predicted on the website and um, the odds that Donald Trump is the Republican nominee are way above the odds that Biden is the Democratic nominee. So it's becoming more and more likely uh, that there's going to be some kind of bait and switch or, you know, they're going to get rid of Biden and, 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 and put somebody else up there. Uh, because I don't even know how, I mean, he can't debate, you know, so he's going to have to have some, some way of, uh, you know, refusing to debate Trump. Um, you know, he didn't debate anybody in the primary, but that's okay. I mean, neither did Donald Trump. I mean, that's not unprecedented, but there's never been a, uh, a presidential a candidate, even the sitting president, who has refused to debate uh, their uh, principal challenger from the the second you know leading party. I mean, so that would be unprecedented move. Uh, but given the realities of the election, and you know we've got another, we got the uh, the South Carolina primary coming up on uh, on Saturday over the weekend. I'm going to talk a little politics in the the, the final segment. In fact, actually, we got a quick commercial break, so stick around. Uh, we'll be right back. I'm going to finish up what I was talking about on inflation and the Fed, and then we'll get into some politics. Factors ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning. Skip the grocery stores, the prep work, and instead get chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 meals to choose from per week, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan, veggie, and more, plus over 55 add-ons. There are tons of options. My brother had their pork chops and chicken for dinner last week, and he said they were both excellent. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Just head to Factormeals.com slash GoldPeter50 and use code GoldPeter50 to get 50% off. So forget about frantic lunch preps and rush dinners. Factors two-minute meals are your secret weapon in the new year. Fuel up fast with restaurant-quality meals all delivered right to your door. Get chef-crafted restaurant-quality meals delivered right to your door. They're ready to heat and eat in just two minutes, which means more time for you. Plus, Factor now offers loads of snack options like breakfast, smoothies, juices, snacks, and more to keep you going no matter what's on the schedule. So head to factormeals.com slash goldpeter50 and use code goldpeter50 to get 50% off. Now, also in these Fed minutes, and not just the Fed minutes, but we had some other Fed officials over the course of the week who spoke publicly, and they all talk about the fact that monetary policy is restrictive and that it's been restrictive for a while. And the question is, 
how much longer should they stay restrictive. And there are even some FOMC members that are worried that they're going to overstay. In fact, I, I hear a lot of people, I was listening to Mohammed El Arian uh, was uh, up on CNBC uh, worrying about a policy error that the Fed's going to say too tight for too long. And they're not, they're not going to cut soon enough. And that's going to be their mistake. You know, I mean, they've made a lot of mistakes and they're going to make more, but that's not the mistake. The mistake isn't being too tight. The mistake is that they're too easy and they're still too easy. The monetary policy that we have right now is not restrictive. I don't care that the Fed raised interest rates from zero to five and a quarter, five and a half. This is not a restrictive policy. And even though the Fed continues to shrink their balance sheet and it dropped again, we got the numbers earlier today, another 45, 50 billion. We're getting close now to a seven and a half trillion dollar balance sheet. So almost a million and a half of quantitative tightening. They've actually managed to, uh, to do that. Uh, a bit surprising that they've even gotten this far. Uh, I mean, I, they're going to give up. Uh, the question is, you know, when? But so far, you know, the markets are hanging in there. And so the Fed has been able to continue with this, uh, you know, slow uh, bleed on quantitative uh, tightening. But this is not a restrictive monetary policy. Again, less loose doesn't qualify as tight. But the way you know that monetary policy is not restrictive is look at the market. What is being restricted? Is the government being restricted? Is there any cutback in government spending? Is the government borrowing less because the Fed has increased the cost of borrowing money? No, the government's borrowing more. In fact, they're borrowing more to pay the higher interest rates. So they're not slowing down anything. Government spending. They keep, look, Biden just forgave uh, some more student loans. Uh, where's that coming from? We, they passed recently some tax cuts. The government is still stimulative. So Fed policy is not restricting. You're supposed to cause cuts to government spending and borrowing. That's what restrictive is. What about individuals? Are they being restricted? No. Credit card debt is a record high. Household debt is a record high. Spending keeps increasing. Where is the restriction? (laughs) There is none. The Fed is accommodating. It is accommodative to all this borrowing and spending. It is stimulative. The Fed is still providing stimulus into the economy. Maybe it's not providing as much as it was before, but it's still providing it. And with its forward guidance, it's providing it by promising to cut rates. Look at the stock market. The stock market's at record highs. Is the Fed's monetary policy restricting the stock market? No, the stock market is booming. At least, you know, a small, you know, section of it that's leading the averages. But you've got record highs in the stock market. There's not, this isn't a restrictive policy. And of course, to the extent that the stock market has a wealth effect, which you know, facilitates additional consumption, additional spending, if monetary policy was restrictive, what would you expect to be observing in the real economy? Well, a, a decline of borrowing and spending. Stock prices would be lower if the Fed was restrictive. You'd have a reverse wealth effect. Right. You'd have stock prices going down. None of this is happening. 
<laughs> this is an accommodative Fed that is accommodating massive spending, massive borrowing. Yeah, sure, it's got a pretense. Oh, yeah, we're going to fight inflation. We've raised interest rates. Look where they were. They were at zero. And so, oh, yeah, it looks like they're high. Go back in history and look at interest rates in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, even the 2000s. The rate that we have now is not high. But we have very high inflation. We have a mountain of debt. We need much higher interest rates than what we've got. But the Fed is trying to convince everybody that five and a quarter is restriction. And at the same time saying it's going to cut rates. I mean, how are you having restrictive monetary policy if you're dangling all these rate cuts in front of everybody, right? You're like waving a flag at a bull. This, This is loosening monetary conditions. The Fed is actually easing without even cutting with its uh, forward guidance and, and the expectation that don't worry. Yeah, rates are 5% now, but they're not going to stay 5% for long because we're going to start cutting, even though 5% is historically low, at least since the moving up, leaving of the gold standard. I mean, you can't compare the interest rates that we have now to interest rates we had under a gold standard because it's apples and oranges. I mean, we had real monetary discipline back then. But if you go to not just the post-war, but post-1971, ever since we went to fiat money, the rate that we have right now is low. (laughs) It's It's not restrictive. We had restrictive monetary policy in 1980. What did that look like when the Fed was actually being restrictive? Well, rates were at 20%. And inflation, more honestly measured than it is now, peaked at 13.5%. So you had 6.5% real interest rates. The Dow was below 1,000, and gold was at 1,000. So you had a situation where the Dow and gold were the same price when the Fed was really being restrictive. You had a very severe recession, 1981, 1982. That was the worst recession since the Great Depression, right? Until I guess we got uh, the, the 2007, 2008. But bond yields were 13, 14%. Right? So, yes, there you had a restrictive monetary policy. What we have now is nothing like that. And the, the, the reality is, from a fiscal situation, we were far sounder in 1980 than we are in 2024. We need even tougher uh, monetary policy than what we got from Volcker. 1980, we didn't even have a trillion dollar national debt. Now we got 34 trillion and rising. 1980, I think debt to GDP was around 30, 40%, something like that. (laughs) Now it's 125%. 1980, we were running large trade surpluses. We were still the world's biggest creditor nation. Now we're running huge trade deficits. We're the world's biggest debtor nation. So we need uh, a a restrictive monetary policy now more than ever, except we can't afford one because we're so broke. Um, But for everybody to keep talking about how restrictive we are, how restrictive we are, we're not. But maybe they're thinking, well, if we just pretend we're restrictive, well, you know, everybody will think we're fighting inflation because we claim that we have this tight money. They don't have tight money. But yes, inflation came down the way they measure it from 9% down 
to 3%. But that's it. That's in the past. And the year-over-year comps are going to get harder and harder and harder. So I think as the year progresses, the year-over-year inflation numbers are going to keep disappointing to the upside. Inflation is going to keep being worse than expected. And the question is, how long are the markets going to be able to shrug that off? And how long will the gold markets uh, fail to rise based on that? Because in the gold markets, they look at inflation and they just assume, well, don't worry, it's going to go away. The Fed's going to kill it. But the stock market is not worried that the Fed's going to have to fight hard to kill inflation because the stock market doesn't seem to think that interest rates are going up. But the gold market does, or the gold market thinks that they're not going down and somehow that we need lower rates in order to push up higher gold prices. But we're going to get lower real rates. That's what the gold market doesn't seem to get. As I said earlier in this podcast, even if the Fed stays where it is, real rates are going down because inflation is going up. And that is a big positive for for gold. The market just hasn't figured that out. Anyway, I want to... uh, talk a little bit politics. A lot has uh, gone on with Trump. Uh, in particular, and I think th- this is the, you know, the most egregious of it, but Donald Trump was ordered by a, a New York judge to pay a $350 million fine. And there's interest on that, too. I mean, he has to be, it's like, with the interest, I think it's like $450 million is the total bill. And, of course, it's getting bigger because the interest compounds until, until he pays up, right? But $450 million for taking out a loan that he repaid in full with interest. So Trump borrows money from sophisticated big banks some of the biggest, most sophisticated banks in the world, voluntarily loan Donald Trump money. He fills out a loan application. Uh, They review it. They decide to make the loan. Trump repays the loan with interest. So it turned out to be a good loan, right? A good loan is when you get your money back and you get your interest, right? So all the parties are happy. And now this judge comes along and says, oh, no, no. We think there was fraud involved in this loan. I think Donald Trump overstated the value of his holdings. And therefore, he defrauded these lenders into making the loan. And so we're going to punish him for fraud. But how do you have a fraud when nobody has been defrauded? Nobody has lost any money. If Donald Trump had defaulted on these loans, and the banks had, you know, repossessed his collateral and went to sell it and then found out it was worth a fraction of what Trump said and they lost a lot of money. All right, well, maybe they could have said, hey, we're, we were defrauded by this guy. Um, but lenders are expected as a you know, matter of practice. You don't just take somebody's word for it. Hey, I say my property is worth this. Okay, well, let's do an appraisal. I mean, that's what banks have. They have analysts. They have appraisers. They don't just accept blindly the numbers that you put on a piece of paper 
I mean, they do their own homework. I mean, that's why these guys are paid, right? The bankers make a lot of money uh, to uh, analyze risk. <laughs> you know, if people, if, if people just took the word for what the borrower said, you wouldn't even need all these people in the lending department. You would just accept whatever some guy said is the value of his assets. And you wouldn't need any loan officers. You wouldn't need any risk guys. I mean, just a couple of people could do, run the whole bank. Of course, you don't just take their word. You know, it's, I remember back in uh, the real estate bubble, they had all these no-doc loans, right, where people didn't even uh, provide any documentation. Uh, of, uh, they just, they, 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 they put what their income was, they put what their asset, but they didn't have any documents to back it up, right? They were called a no-doc loan. But the industry name for the no-doc loan were liar's loans. Because... If you got a no-doc loan, you paid a little bit more interest than if you would have fully documented uh, your, your, your claims. So if you could get a lower interest rate by proving your income and proving you know, your assets or liabilities, you would do that. The only reason that people weren't backing up the numbers that they wrote on their applications was because they were lying. But the industry knew they were lying, and they made the loans anyway. Now, how many people who took out liars' loans and lied got charged <laughs> for fraud because they put down a, 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 the wrong number on their on their application? You know, Donald Trump puts down a number and says, "My properties are worth this," knowing that the banks are going to take whatever number you put, and they're going to put a haircut on it. They're not going to just accept it. It's almost like Bidding. I mean, you talk to anybody who's in the real estate industry who borrows money, and someone says, what are your properties worth? I mean, oh, well, here's what I think that they're worth. Now you go and you figure out what you think they're worth and decide how much money you want to lend me. It's not like Donald Trump was able to force the banks to lend him money. They voluntarily lent the money, and they testified that they would loan it to him again. Hey, this guy's a great customer. We like doing business with him. We'll loan him more money. <laughs> Doesn't sound like there was any fraud there. I mean, normally you got to have some a victim, right? To have fraud is a crime. Well, who's the victim? Who was defrauded? Well, nobody, because nobody lost any money. <laughs> but the the judges just say, well, I'm going to come in. I'm going to say that the buildings were worth less than what you claimed. You know, even though the 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 banks probably knew that and and wrote it down, right? What's going on here? Because right? this is an unprecedented situation. And this is not just about Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is a big part of it. But you have a, you know, not a conspiracy because it's kind of out in the open. But you have the Democratic establishment working together to undermine Donald Trump. Uh, illegally using uh, the legal system, right? Uh, uh, lawfare. To, to, to punish and stifle and, and actually interfere. I mean, for all the talk about, oh, Donald Trump was trying to interfere in the, in the 2020 election, they are interfering in the 2024 election by trying to undermine the candidacy of Donald Trump by tying him up in lawsuits, by fining him, by distracting him, by taking money and time that could be used on the campaign and having him deal with all these frivolous and illegal lawsuits. But in the process, there's a lot of other damage that's being done here. 
I mean, and, and some of it intentional. Because imagine another businessman. Because Donald Trump entered politics as an outsider. And the career politicians, they don't like that, right? Um, they they, they want to maintain their little club, their little monopoly, and they don't like, you know, businessmen taking time off to go to Washington and just be there for a little while and kind of clean up the mess. They don't want that, right? They, they, they're living in that swamp, and they, they like it the way it is. And so a lot of businessmen who we really need to go into politics, right? they're going to think, well, there's no way I'm going to do that now. I mean, look what they're doing to Donald Trump. I mean, if you're a businessman and you be, go into politics, you could be punished. Does anybody think any of this would have happened? Would Donald Trump have been fined $350 million for fraud on his loan applications had he never been president? Of course not. This never would have happened. You know, it would have been the exact same loans, exact same circumstances. Nothing would have happened to him. The only reason this is happening is because he was a president and because he's trying to be president again. That's it. And so that's sending a message. If you are a businessman and you're thinking of going into politics, don't. Because the minute uh, you, you, you throw your hat in the ring or you, you, know, you, you raise up and raise your profile, they're going to you know, weaponize this corrupt judicial system and they're going to punish you. And so people are going to think twice. It already is very difficult to get into politics. They already stacked the rules with the campaign finance laws. But this makes it worse. But also, I think we're sending a big message again to the rest of the world to get the hell out of Dodge when it comes to the U.S. I mean, one of the reasons that a lot of international money has invested in America over the years is the, the, the confidence in our legal system, in, in the rule of law, in, in private property, right, that you can own property, assets, a business here, and you're protected by the rule of law. It just can't be arbitrarily taken away from you. But what we are now showing the world is that's not the case. Because judges can just take your money away from you. Right? I mean, and look at these defamation. Uh, look, you know, Giuliani loses a defamation case for, what, $150, $160 million because a couple of election workers <laughs> say he called them names. You know, he hurt their feelings or whatever. I mean, $160 million, the fine that you're seeing for Donald Trump. People are thinking, I can't, I can't afford to do business in America. I don't want to own property in America when I could be sued like that or some judge can arbitrarily impose a fine. And where did he get that number? $350 million for what? <laughs> I mean, you know, Donald Trump, he, he had a good point. I watched his uh, town hall. Um... That was on Fox with Laura Ingram. And he, he talked about the Eighth Amendment. I talked about it on my podcast when I was talking about the $1.5 million fine I got for filing a form late, right, where no tax was due. It was just an informational form. I filed it late, and they said, oh, a million and a half dollar fine. I mean, it's like, how could that be constitutional? It's an excessive fine. And here Donald Trump is saying this fine is obviously excessive. I mean, for $350 million for nothing? I mean, if that's not excessive, what is? I mean, how many people can even pay 
a $350 million fine. I mean, it's clearly excessive. In fact, not only is it an excessive fine, it's actually cruel and unusual punishment. He's being punished for what he did. I mean, let's say, okay, yes, you exaggerated if we think you said these buildings were worth more than they probably were. Um, but again, you know, there's a lot of people that put their house on the market and they put it up on a high price. Doesn't sell right away. Maybe it doesn't sell at all. Are they committing a crime? I mean, they think that's what it's worth. You know, I mean, Donald Trump can think his properties are worth whatever he wants. And he can put down any valuation. As long as he's not lying about the debt that he has, right? If he presents, hey, here's a piece of property that I own. You can do the appraisal. Here's the rental income from that property. I'm not lying. They didn't say you misrepresented your rents. It's here's the property. Here's the, here's the debt I have. Here's the rental income. And here's what I think I can sell it for. Here's what I think it's worth. Now, you disagree or not, whatever. But here's what I think. And here's, this is it. Just You decide. Do you want to give me a loan or not? These are my assets. Right? But even if you think he exaggerated. So what should the penalty be for doing that? It's clearly not $350 million. Where did he even get that number? It's such, it's such an outrageous number. Obviously, it's because Trump has a billion dollars. But you can't base the fine well, the guy's rich, so we're just going to have a big fine. I mean, there's got to be equal protection under the law. That's, there's got to be a certain fine. You just can't hammer some guy with this huge fine. Because, I mean, if it could be three and a, $350 million, why can't it be $3.5 billion? Why can't he just bankrupt Donald Trump? Because if you can fine him $350 million, you can fine him $3.5 billion. You can just wipe him out on a whim. So... People around the world are seeing this, not just from the prism of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, an election, but like, I don't want to get involved. Who the hell's next? I mean, there are a lot of people now that are saying, well, shit, I don't want to do business in New York, right? I think uh, Kevin O'Leary uh, was out there talking about it. I don't want to do business in New York. Um, you know, a few other high-profile people have come out. Uh, but I don't think it's just about New York. It's about the whole United States. It's about, you know, why take a chance if this, if this stuff can happen? There's not a lot of outrage in the media. Most of the media is like, oh, yeah, you know, this is good, right? He, <clears throat> he deserved these fines. You know, look at what's going on with Trump in Georgia, you know, where he's got, he's being prosecuted uh, there for election interference, all these, you know, trumped up charges. But it turns out that the woman who's leading the charge is herself a criminal. And you can't make any of this stuff up. But, you know, she she put her boyfriend on the payroll. And so her boyfriend's hired to be a prosecutor against Trump, who's really not qualified. I guess he's a lawyer, but he's a personal injury lawyer or something. He's not really qualified for this, although nobody's really qualified when it's a, it's a made-up uh, charge. Uh, but the only reason he obviously got the job is because he's sleeping with uh, the woman who gave him the job, and he's clearly getting overpaid. But then he's taken all this money that was paid to him by the taxpayers of Georgia, and he's taken his girlfriend on these you know, lavish vacations all around the world. So she's basically paying herself. She hired some guy that she's sleeping with. The, the taxpayers pay him, and then they take, he, she gets that money right back because... They go on vacations. Now, of course, all this comes out, and you know, 
But now the, 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 the Lord, I forget all their names. It, it doesn't even matter who, what the hell the names are. But <laughs> the guy's on the stand and he says, well, you know, it's okay because she paid me back for half of the vacations, right? Like I charged her. I mean, I mean, I don't know. Is that how, how it goes these days when you're dating a woman? You know, you make her pay for half the vacations that you take her on. But so apparently he's saying, look, it's okay because she paid me back. And it's like, well, do you have any proof? Or, well, no, she paid me in cash. And, and then she's on there saying, yeah, I just, I have, I have a lot of cash, which in and of itself is pretty suspicious. I mean, you're a government official and you got tons of cash lying around. I mean, where'd you get that cash? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, that in and of itself, right, says that maybe there's something shady going on. I mean, is she taking bribes or, you know, where? She just says, well, I have a lot of cash. Well, where did you come by all this cash? <laughs> I mean, most people, I mean, don't have piles of cash, you know, around, right? Um, but here's what really jumped out to me because they're this, I'm listening to this guy on a, on a witness stand. You can hear the see him up on, uh, on, uh, on, on, the, on YouTube. But he says, look, I charged it on my business card. He says, I charge everything on my business card. Every expense I have, I put it on my business card. And then she paid me back in cash. Now, first of all, I'm here now. I put everything on my business card. Well, who the hell does that? The whole purpose of a business card is to separate it from your personal card <laughs> so that when you're out and you're spending money, when you're doing something personal, you use your personal card. And then when you do something on business, you use your business card. This guy said, I put everything on my business card, even if it's personal. Well, what does that tell you? Well, he's obviously, you know, cheating on his taxes. That's what he's doing. Now, then later he claimed, well, at the end of the year, my accountant and I, we go over my business card and we try to figure out which is a business expense and which is a personal expense. Yeah, right. Why the hell would you do that? It's so much easier to have two cards. It's not like credit cards take up a lot of room in your wallet and you can't have one for personal and one for business. And then you don't have to bother to try to figure out. And of course, what probably happened Assuming that the girlfriend actually gave him half of the cost of the vacation in cash that he charged on his business card, what I think he probably was doing is he was deducting the entire amount of the vacation on his taxes as if it was a business expense. So let's say they spent 10 grand on the vacation and he put the entire 10 grand on his business card. He probably deducted the 10 grand, got the five grand from her, and put that in his pocket. Didn't declare that as income. So he actually deducted $10,000 of expenses when he only had 5,000 in expenses because he got the other 5,000 in cash, but none of it should have been deducted because it was all uh, uh, personal uh, and not business. So you got you know the people who are going after Donald Trump for supposedly being dishonest or defrauding somebody they're themselves are involved in this gigantic tax fraud, you know, money laundering. Uh, what we, I mean, you can't even make this stuff up. Yet nobody seems to care or, or, or point this out. The absurdity of, of what is going on, uh, you know, with, this, with the legal system and how corrupt uh, the legal system is. But anyway, so getting back to, uh, to Trump. So I... I, um, I listened to him on, on the Laura Ingram show. And 
You know, one of the things that he, that he said, and again, and I, I, I'm not really trying to be too critical, but the, the point that he made that I, a lot of politicians, a lot of economists um, get wrong is he was upset. He was accusing companies of dumping their products into American markets. Like, oh, they're dumping foreign companies or dumping their dishwashers or whatever into the American market. And this is a bad thing. We got to stop this dumping. Um, dumping, right, what it, that's supposed to be is when companies sell their products for less than the cost of producing them, right? So they're dumping them into our market, supposedly, and this is going to hurt uh, American industry because they can't compete because foreigners are deliberately selling their products into the American market at a loss. And either the companies are losing money or the governments are subsidizing them to lose money. And supposedly this is harming the U.S. economy and we have to stop it. The truth is that the dump, if, if, a, if companies really were dumping, the, the, the injured party are the dumpers, not the dumpees. If a country or a company is dumb enough to spend $1,000 to produce a product, right, take land, labor, and capital, valuable, scarce resources, and set them at a task, tie them up so that they can't do something else, and it costs $1,000 of land, labor, and capital, and they produce something, and then they sell it to us for $800, they lose $200. That's a real economic loss. America has an economic gain. We got $1,000 worth of goods, and we only had to pay $800. We are a winner. We win in that transaction. They lose. That's why dumping is not going to continue, because the dumper is the loser. The dumpy is the benefactor of that charity, of that benevolence. So we don't need the government to protect us from dumping. The dumpers will stop because they're going to lose too much money. And in the meantime, yeah, we get money. Now, in the short run, are there some losers? Yes, there are some losers, right? A company that might have sold me a dishwasher in America is going to lose because some foreign company was dumb enough to sell me a dishwasher for less than it cost to produce it. But why should I be denied the benefit as a consumer? If some foreign company wants to be that dumb, why should I not be able to take advantage of it? Yes, is it tough for the U.S. dishwashing company? Yeah, for a while, but not in the long run, because how long can you stay in business if you're constantly selling your products at a loss? You're not going to be in business very long. You're not going to make any money. You're not going to be able to reinvest and grow the company. So those companies are eventually going to go away, and uh, American companies will figure out how to deal with it. That's all. You know, we don't need the government uh, to come out and try to level the playing field or make it fair. The market is going to... Uh, fix this. But Trump wants to make it act like, well, yeah, all we got to do is I got to come in there and I got to get tough on our trading partners. And he, he's, he talked a lot on Ingram about you know how successful his uh, tariffs were and his policy, but it wasn't successful. The trade deficits went up. The trade deficits were higher when Trump left office than when he took the oath of office. And even if you forget about COVID, if you look at where the trade deficits were before COVID, they went up. The budget deficits went up. I'm not saying that Trump didn't do any good things, but he didn't solve these problems. He didn't make America great again 
when he was in office the first time. And he's not going to make America great again if he goes back and repeats the same mistakes. Now, did he make as many mistakes as, as Biden did? No, no. Biden is, Biden is way worse. But the inflation is not all Biden. Trump was spending money. Uh, you know, Trump was part of the problem when it comes to deficit spending. The debt ran up by a record when he was president. Now, Biden could break that record. But what we don't need is another record in deficit spending. We need somebody to start cutting government spending. You know, all these people who think that inflation is going to come back down to 2%, how could that possibly happen? Why would that happen? The crazy thing was that they ever got it down to 2% in the first place. Now, one of the reasons they got it down to 2% is they lied. It was never 2%. They, they, they cooked the books. They rigged the CPI. That's how they got it down there. Uh, but now, even though it's rigged, the inflation problem is so big that they can't hide it anymore, you know, unless they figure out how to, how to rejigger the CPI again. But they can't hide it from the public. Uh, prices are rising. You know, I, I, I just, I, I had to buy another golf cart. I actually traded my golf carts in. But I went in and I called up, uh, I didn't trade them in. I, I sold some golf carts and I bought some new ones. But I called up the company where I bought a golf cart uh, two, three years ago. And I asked the price of buying one today. Um, same cart. I bought it for like $16,000. And the same exact cart with the same, you know, features is $21,000. You know, just two to three years later, right? It's like 30, 30% increase. So it's over 10%. You're just in a golf cart, right? The, these are big price increases that are still going on. They're, they're, they haven't stopped. And they're not going to stop. They're going to continue. The markets just have not come to terms with this disaster. And what's going to happen when this, the, the inflation genie comes back and the Fed is, is, is out, of, out of bullets? Right? It can't raise rates anymore. The rate hikes are over. It's got to go back to quantitative easing. And uh, in, in, in inflation is accelerating. E everything that people believe uh, is going to unravel quickly. And all the investment mistakes that are being made, particularly on a day like today, are going to be obvious. And the consequences for the people who made those mistakes are going to be catastrophic. Anyway, thanks, everybody, for listening. And don't forget to stick around. I'm going to do probably another hour of Q&A uh, at uh, shiftradio.com uh, slash premium. So bye for now. 